are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Iolani School is the first private K-12 campus that will be requiring mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations for its staff and for students in the upper grades. This morning, we talked to Head of School Tim Cottrell about that decision as we are seeing a wave of triple-digit COVID-19 cases in our community. We have come out with the policy that we're mandating vaccination in our upper school and not in our lower school. Our lens through which we look to make these decisions is always student-centered. You know, we, we want to reestablish as normal conditions as we possibly can, you know, pre-pandemic for our student body. And we were pretty successful at doing that last year, right? We had a very complete school year, and even down toward the end of the year, we had a lot of activities, right, for our seniors. We had a very uh, normal graduation ceremony, uh, and that revolved around using a lot of PPE and other safety measures, right? So uh, we were probably one of the more rigorous places where we asked, students to wear a mask and a face shield all the time, except when they were eating. And we sent up tents all around our campus, so they were only eating when they were outdoors. And we had very um, strict sanitization uh, requirements for the kids, that they washed their hands when they went in and out of every classroom, right? So all of that worked really well. We had zero on-campus transmission cases last year, and we were on campus for the majority of the year. And of course, like any other place, we had cases of within the employee and student population uh, that they got from the community, right? So so that worked really well. It's the same perspective moving into this year. How can we do it as safely as possible with the change being that vaccination and testing are uh, really good tools in our toolkit this year? So, you know, the the way that we look at it is there's two things. One is being vaccinated is analogous to wearing PPE 24 hours a day, right? It gives you that protection, you know, a similar kind of protection all the time. So that's a really good option for preventing transmission. Uh, perhaps more importantly, it also mitigates symptoms, right? And that, that's the second way we're really looking at this, that we're accepting the fact that COVID is not going away. This is not a, once we get out of this, things will get back to normal. This is a disease that's thoroughly in the human population around the world. And it's quite likely we are all gonna get COVID in the next 20 years, as long as we're around, whether we're vaccinated or not, right? It's gonna be um, that kind of a disease, like the flu or like, you know, bronchitis or like all the other things we get. So the question is, you know, getting vaccinated turns that from a disease that's life-threatening to one that can either be pretty insubstantial or you can have symptoms associated with it, right? But it's the acceptance that that's going to be the case. That's the other part of why we would go ahead and say, let's just do this. Let's go ahead and mandate it in our upper school. And and clarify, because uh, age 12, I know, is when uh, young people can get the Pfizer vaccine. So if you have a student that's 12 and above in the upper school, they have to be vaccinated, but if they're 12 in the lower school, not? Not. That's correct. And if you're not 12 in the upper school, you don't have to be vaccinated either. You know, and we've approached it with, I think, a pretty reasonable policy on exemptions, right? We, we're not requiring a medical condition or anything like that. We are asking for some type of justification from a pediatrician if you choose a medical exemption. So it's, it's fairly easy to get an exemption. And out of the 1,400 or so families in our upper school, I think we have between 40 and 45 that have requested exemptions for either medical or religious reasons. And when you break that down, that's really what we're doing is you're, you're always, you're playing a game of statistics, right? So that if, you know, one out of 15 people or one out of 20 people is not vaccinated, that's a totally safe community because the virus just doesn't have places to hop and propagate, right? So in our community population, our employees are vaccinated above 99%, and our upper school will, will come in above 95%, right? So, you know, from our, in, in our way of thinking, the environment in the future is not going to get safer than that, right? So we feel pretty comfortable mandating the vaccine and what that will allow us to do uh, safety-wise within our community. We still are working in accordance with the orders uh, that are out there from the city and state. So in our lower school, students will wear face masks inside and outside. 
Uh, in our upper school, students will have to wear face masks inside, uh, but not outside. Okay, and the shields, you're dropping the shields? We're dropping the shields, yeah. Okay. And then I did see in your memo that went out to your school community uh, that you will be opening back up the water fountains. Yep. We'll be opening back up water fountains. I mean, quite a, quite a few of the things that, you know, will, will be returned to normal around campus. Um, you know, we're, we're opening back up the water fountains. Um, we're stopping kind of traffic control. Last year we had a whole bunch of traffic patterns so we could do tracking and tracing. We are going down a level, an order of magnitude in terms of the rigor of cohorting and those kinds of ideas, right? We're, so we're, you know, I, I think we're, we're taking that step toward normalcy, right, from where we are, I, I think in a really very, very safe way, right? And, and what I've said to people over and over again is we shouldn't expect this going into this was really difficult and kind of changing our mindsets about what we had to do to go into the pandemic. I don't think it's any easier coming out of the pandemic, right? That <laughs> we have to change our mindset as well, right? And and what I have said to people is, you know, during the pandemic when we didn't have vaccines, COVID was like having a hungry lion in your backyard, right? You step out of your house unintentionally and something really bad could happen to you. Being vaccinated turns COVID into a an annoying barky dog instead of a lion, right? So it, it, it you know, we, we do need to change that perspective in terms of the fear of it for, for people who are vaccinated. And what about uh, for, let's say, excursions, that kind of thing? What's the policy for mask wearing and activities? Um, we, we will follow in the upper school where we're mandating vaccination. We'll just follow what the orders are from the city and state. We'll, we'll do whatever the city and state says. In the lower school, of course, um, those students aren't vaccinated, so that requires masks all the time. Uh, our expectation is that late September, early October, is when Pfizer is projecting that it's going to be able to distribute its vaccine to children younger than 12 years old. So as we have done, we'll run a clinic on our campus for those kids. And, and we expect a large majority of our families to have their kids vaccinated. But what we don't intend to mandate it for the lower school. I think it will probably just work out that once that's available, a large number of, of families will have their kids vaccinated and then we'll, we'll potentially change a policy from there. I talked to a mom whose child was 12 but was uh, underweight, and the yeah. pediatrician, you know, recommended, well, maybe you just might want to hold off. Yeah. So that would be an easy exemption, you know. The pe pediatrician could just, you know, send us a letter saying, you know, the, the, my recommendation and the family's recommendation is that for, for now there's a medical exemption for this student. We'd be fine with that. And what about testing? Because uh, I know you folks have been doing daily uh, health checks, but uh, what's going to be in place? Um, yeah, that's the other part of this, right? So we still have a large number of tests left over from what we purchased before. I, I, something, I, we probably have around 15,000 rapid antigen tests, and we're, we're um, certified to be able to give those on campus. So our approach is going to be pretty significant pool, ongoing pool testing, right, with the anticipating that there will be breakthrough cases, right, of, student, of students or faculty or staff that, are vaccinated but get COVID and might not know it, right? You know, they might get it and it's asymptomatic or it has the symptoms of a cold or something like that. So every day uh, we're gonna do just pool testing within students in our lower and upper school and the same with employees. And that's just to try to keep track if there is virus running around in our population that we don't know about, we wanna try to, to get a handle on that. And a number of private schools do have borders how are you managing that population? Yeah, so our borders will all be vaccinated. Students coming from other countries that haven't had access to that, we'll, we are arranging for that. So the, the kids in our boarding program will all be vaccinated. And, you know, we had the boarding program last year without vaccination when we're very successful running the, running the program that way. So it's a little bit more of potentially the use of PPE, but in fact, that's kind of a self-contained population that doesn't commingle with the larger community as much as the rest of the student body does. So, so in many ways, that boarding population is more secured and in a safer bubble than those of us who are out doing everything out in the community where there's a lot more COVID running around. That was Tim Cottrell, headmaster for Iolani School in Honolulu. Iolani is one of two private schools mandating vaccines for staff and students. The other is 
Brigham Young University in Laie. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Kakimochi or mochi crunch? Well, for today's backyard quiz, we're testing your knowledge of the local savory treat. You know it, the brown bite-sized cracker made from glutinous rice and flavored with soy sauce. It's a snack staple in Hawaii, sort of a island Chex Mix, which, funny enough, some people put in their homemade Chex uh, Mix. It comes in a handful of flavor varieties, Sakura, Shinagawamaki, and King Nut Mochi Balls, just to name a few. And just like pasta, they're also made in several shapes, from the standard square to tube-shaped to spherical to flower-shaped. And while it is perfectly fine to eat them out of the package like popcorn, many people mix them in with other foods like popcorn or mix several varieties together. But just like several other popular Hawaii snacks like shave ice and manapua and crack seed, this cracker goes by several interchangeable names. So whether you say kakimochi or mochi crunch, you're not wrong. But you're more correct if you call it by its Japanese name. So for today's Backyard Quiz, do you know what that name is? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. Thousands of public school teachers are to report to the classroom the day after tomorrow to start the new academic year. And the following week on August 3rd, students are expected to follow. You may have already noticed more cars on the road as workers are called back to the office. We talked to Jai Cunningham, spokesman for the State uh, Transportation Department, about preparing for the back-to-school jam. On the freeways uh, and highways, uh, we're seeing that sort of pick up. And then, of course, with schools going back to sort of uh, in-classroom in learning, you got to kind of change the mindset. You know, if you, you're all of a sudden for a year and a half, you enjoyed your drive to town being 20 or 30 minutes less, you might want to remember to add that back. So uh, what may have taken, you know, six months ago may have taken 40 minutes, maybe more like an hour 10 now. So just a heads up, especially, you know, uh, our friends over at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, uh, you know, it's such a heavy commuter school that once they're back in, about that third week of August, you, you are likely to really see a, a pretty dramatic shift in morning and, and afternoon commutes, but especially morning commutes, as so many of the students there uh, drive cars. And so uh, expect that to change. So, you know, a number of different things you can do besides the getting a little bit earlier start. Um, doesn't hurt if you have a friend or friends who you can carpool with, because when you do that out on the freeways, uh, and highways, you can use a number of the different uh, HOV lanes, you know, the zipper lane. Uh, zipper lanes expanded over the years to where it's the two lanes now. So uh, it benefits you to have uh, uh, other people in your car you, that might save on your commute time. And, of course, there is mass transportation. I have a very good bus system uh, that uh, would take the driving out of your hands and let somebody else do the driving for you. But with that being said, uh, the bus still has that mask mandate in place. So 
while you're allowed to sort of be out at the park without a mask on, just know that uh, when you're on the bus that you're going to need to still have a mask on. Yeah, and but I those think are a few of the things. I, I think also, you know, it's just plan early, you know, plan ahead. And so it doesn't hurt to kind of get the word out so that it's on people's radar. Exactly. And that's why we've kind of reached out uh, to the different media outlets to try and let folks know, don't let the guard down or you may have forgotten what it was kind of like pre-pandemic. And so that's, you know, that's sort of our first task, if you will, is to try and, and let folks know that, you know, a regular sort of school year, and I put regular in, in quotation marks, is almost upon us. And so, you know, the great thing also now is there are so many different applications that you can put on these smartphones that help you figure out from point A to point B what the quickest route is. So, you know, things like Waze. You can also go to our uh, website, goakamai.org, if you haven't already. And then that'll help you to some degree. Uh, that helps. And then the other thing we're asking that a lot of people sort of take for granted is if you are going to drive, what we also would really benefit us is make sure your car is in really good running order. Make sure the tires are, are filled with air. Make sure that they're sort of not old. So that way, if you make sure all the fluids are topped off, you know, you don't have a car that overheats. You don't have a, a blown tire or something like that that could really ruin your, your morning commute. And not only that, but could be sort of an inconvenience for all the other drivers as well. So, you know, just ask that you make sure you... Check your car. Make sure it's uh, in good working order as well. Well, I can relate to that because I had a low pressure uh, warning, a low pressure, low pressure tire warning pop up on my car today. So, uh, uh, yeah, it, it just pays to make sure that your your car's in good running order. Well, and you know the the cars now basically can talk to you. They're <laughs> they can tell you what's wrong with them, which uh, is super beneficial. But yeah, that you know it, it's uh, you know while some people will take advantage of uh, of the. Uh, HOV lanes and that sort of thing, you are going to have a lot of folks who uh, are just going to be in their car. So, um, you know, just just be prepared, be ready, uh, and know that it is sort of coming. Uh, and then, you know, as we tell people, too, it's uh, you'd rather sort of get to your destination 10 or 15 minutes early than 10 or 15 minutes late. So, you know, you could get a, an early start on emails or whatever the case is when you're headed to the office. And have you uh, heard from the city just as far as the bus schedule at all? Have not, have not. But with that being said, with the other thing that we'd really like folks to know about and kind of just be aware of is now with the, so many of the schools, all the way from elementary schools to high schools, with so many schools back in session, um, also pedestrian safety. When you're out on the streets, especially in your neighborhood, just know that you're going to see a, a lot more kids with uh, backpacks on and things like that. And so uh, you're going to have maybe a little bit more traffic uh, pedestrian traffic and crosswalks and things like that. So also advising folks uh, just to make sure you keep an eye out for the, the cakey out there because you could have, you know, from preschool to kindergartners all the way up to high schoolers are going to be back out walking to, to school during this, this month. So just be aware of that. Make sure that uh, you get safely where you need to go and that the pedestrians out there get there as well. And I know that that new uh, transportation center uh, opened up, you know, recently, and I don't know how the operations there are affecting, you know, monitoring our surface streets and, and the highways. I can tell you this, and, and, and I know it firsthand because I have a coworker who uses it on a daily basis. So uh, during rush hour uh, along Nimitz Highway, when you come off the airport viaduct, they actually have those lights coordinated so that during morning rush hour, you're able to make it through if not all of them, most all of those lights all the way towards downtown. So uh, we're aware of that. And it changes throughout the day so that, you know, obviously morning rush hour, you're going to have more commute and you're going to have many more cars that you're trying to move from west to east uh, and vice versa. So you want that highway and those intersections uh, to be open a little longer for those cars that are traveling along Nimitz and the side streets, maybe a little less time. Or, for, or more time in between their lights so that you can move a, a heavier amount of cars. So uh, very aware of that. And so that's one of the things that we have in place, trying to make sure morning commutes are a little less a little less of a suffer and a little nicer. And anything on the, uh, on the front for the neighbor islands? Neighbor islands, you know, uh, just kind of the same thing that, you know, they're, they're going to have more and more people that are going to be 
uh, out on the roadways as well. So just be aware of that as well. That, I guess that would be the thing. Is It is a statewide campaign. Obviously, a lot of times we tend to sort of be Oahu-centric a little bit. But, uh, no, this is uh, schools uh, on all the islands back up and going. So you will see a very similar pattern uh, on those neighbor islands as well. Right. And then uh, uh, I know the city bus, uh, you know, has switched over to the Holo Holo cards. So that's something else to, you know, get used to. But, uh, yeah, it's like uh, back to school jam, <laughs> just around the it, corner. It, it is. And also, as one of our beloved traffic reporters on one of the television stations like to say, make sure you pack your patience. Ah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Jai. We appreciate it. And, and uh, hopefully a motorist plan ahead. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. And hope you have a safe travels. That was Jai Cunningham, spokesman for the State Department of Transportation, talking about the expected back-to-school jam as workers get back to the office and teachers and students get back in the classroom. So a reminder, public school teachers return this Wednesday. Students start August 3rd next week, and half of the private schools return on uh, August 18th. And the university's uh, University of Hawaii's first day is August 23rd. And while the administration has walked back on mandatory in-person classes, it believes a good majority of professors will be back on campus. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. In an instant, your life can completely change forever. That's how Cheryl Crowder, author and psychotherapist, felt when her husband suddenly died five years ago. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show for part one of her story of the trauma of sudden death. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check puts the magnifying glass on rail. Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Today we're talking about a story that Marcel Henri posted on your website? Yeah, it's the lead story. It's, you know, whenever it has to do with heart and rail, <laughs> needless to say, it gets a lot of attention. And Marcel, who's on a much-needed uh, vacation right now, uh, has got uh, some very interesting information. This is about what he calls a botched rail contract that has really multiplied cost for the project, which is already, as we know, $12.4 billion dollars. 20 miles, 21 stations, although we'll see whether we make it all the way to Ala Moana. In this particular case, what, what Marcel thinks it really illustrates is that by having this botched contract, what it does is it causes ripple effects for other people and other companies and contractors. The particular contractor in this case is non-incorporated. They're a private construction company, and they had charged about $100 million so far on this contract that's worth a total of at least $400 million. And the contract is to relocate utility lines and the last four miles into town. And of course, as you, as we all know, Dillingham Boulevard's got a lot of utility lines, electricity, and then of course below there's water and sewer and, and other connections. The problem is, is NAN has only completed 8% of that work, but uh, Hart, and of course by extension, the city and county of Hawaii taxpayers, as well as other taxpayers, are on the hook for a lot more money. Yeah, and I think in the construction industry, they talk about critical path. <laughs> and yeah, Dillingham is a critical path uh, for yeah. our <laughs> rail station. But yeah, the, with the utility relocation contracts kind of canceled, right? I mean, that last that's a, leg. That's a, yeah, that's essentially what happened. And 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 I should note that a big reason why this happened was because Hart itself failed to obtain the necessary permits for those utility relocations. And, and as such, the whole thing just exploded. So Nan continues to actually submit charges to Hart for that canceled contract. We don't know how much money that is. Hart did not disclose to Marcel those figures. Uh, Lori Kahikina, the interim director there, 
canceled the contract in no small part because she said a whole lot of money was going to top executives at Non Incorporated and top employees, or it was also going to pay crews to mobilize for work that they couldn't do, right? Because you didn't have these permits. And then there's another complication. Another company called Stantec, that's a, a construction, engineering, and inspection contractor, it actually picked up some of that work, some of that relocation responsibility. They, too, have recently asked Hart for millions of dollars more than they're already getting, uh, much of it to cover the cost for the part of the rail that's already been built, those those first 10 miles uh, out in East Kapolei in, into, uh, where is it now? It's just around Aloha Stadium or so. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I know there was a line in uh, in the Marcel story that the 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 whole utility relocation effort has imploded, and so this is just this contract just you know as he puts it been botched. Yeah, that's that's the bottom line, and uh, you know it's interesting. Marcel and I were talking about the about this. Uh, the issue of Dillingham was foreseen a long time ago. We always knew that this was going to be a problem, right? And it's right where Middle Street is, right? Middle Street, and then Dillingham goes into town, and then it's those last four miles to get to Alamoana Center. They're going to be the most complicated. Where it stands right now is that Hart plans to issue a new contract for those utility relocation efforts in December, which seems like a long ways away. But again, the critical point in his story is that uh, because of this mistake, because of these ripple effects, more and more money is being charged to heart to taxpayers for this project. And one wonders whether we're going to have a new price tag here before too long. Yeah, I mean, they've got to get those costs, uh, you know, buttoned down, right? Because they've got to revamp the plan as they go back to D.C. later this fall to talk to the um, Transportation Authority. Right. And then, of course, there's a whole nother myriad of problems of board members being criticized. Right. Anthony Alto has been nominated. Uh, Joe Uno is gone. Toby Martin's gone. Colleen Hanabusa is coming in. It's really quite a a critical period for the construction of the rail project. Yeah. So uh, lots of folks uh, looking to see how this reset of rail is going to save us money. Um, We hope it doesn't cost us anymore. Ha ha ha. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Marcel Henry's story at civilbeat.org. Waikiki hotels have been enjoying pre-pandemic occupancy rates due to the pent-up demand for travel. But this weekend, hotel workers demonstrated trying to get some hotel managers to get back to daily room cleaning and call their housekeepers back to work. HBR's Casey Harlow joins us to talk about the snapshot in Waikiki. Good morning. Morning. Uh, Yeah, so talk to, uh, basically, this is part of our series of uh, the return of tourism and a look at Waikiki. We're calling it uh, Waikiki Summer. And I took a look at the hotels because it was very much a zero to 60 type of situation. And daily visitor arrivals have been increasing since late March, and it continues to happen for domestic travel. So just kind of wanting to see how hotels have been dealing with it. I uh, spoke to Sean D., who's the chief commercial officer with the Outrigger Hospitality Group. And they were one of the few hotels that were open during the pandemic. And uh, he had very much a positive outlook on things, especially for today. He hasn't had, uh, he says that Outrigger hasn't had any trouble bringing back their staff and they are doing daily room cleanings because he says that is part of the expectation that visitors have. And so for Outrigger, that's all about uh, the hospitality in their uh, business model. But uh, today he gave a very much uh, an optimistic view of how hotels and especially for Outrigger uh, is doing going forward? It's definitely getting better. I, there's, there's no doubt. You know, we actually had forecast a very mixed April through July, just really not sure uh, how things would come back. And it's very different, but definitely the recovery has been stronger, I think, than most people expected for the past 90 days or so for the state overall. And so uh, just to kind of give some perspective, uh, the Outrigger uh, Waikiki 
ran in the mid-30s in occupancy rate. They did uh, a lot of uh, Kama'aina staycations during the pandemic and also had rooms for the first responders as part of that uh, campaign that HTA and the city had. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still challenges going on, and he had this to say. It is a different situation on each island. A lot of our properties that we own and operate are located in Oahu, and that's the island that's still suffering the most, uh, mainly because there's been no international visitation. There's no international guests really returning to the islands. Limited flights, a lot of issues with quarantine on both sides. So until the international recovery happens for Oahu, you won't see a full recovery in Oahu. But for the neighbor islands that have a much higher mix of domestic visitors, normally they're seeing a very, very strong second quarter and will likely be strong through into the the third quarter as well. And as you kind of alluded to uh, at the top of this segment, the Unite Here Local 5 had a rally last Friday uh, in front of the Modern and the Ilikai very much uh, asking for workers to be brought back. And a representative with uh, Local 5 uh, told me last week that their workers who got called back uh, to work uh, are seeing about a 99% occupancy rate, and only 63% or so of their membership actually got called back. So uh, very much different um, outlooks happening in Waikiki, but at least for the outrigger, they are bringing their staff back, they are following, they have their own policies that they've had since the pandemic, and they've uh, found a nice balance between safety and uh, maximizing profits and occupancy within their hotels. So what else do the hoteliers have to say uh, about this uh, time as we move into the, you know, other recovery phase? Uh, well, definitely, they. Uh, I spoke to Mufi Hanneman uh, of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. He said that they are the hotels are wanting to bring back their uh, employees and wanting to bring back their workers, and definitely mentioned that housekeeping has changed a little bit, and that is also a very lucrative um, job position. Uh, in his words, is a very lucrative job position. Uh, get paid very well. Uh, but definitely they're wanting to bring back people. So uh, I'll have more information uh, later today as I speak to both uh, Local 5 and also uh, the hoteliers as well. And, uh, you know, I know that there are a couple of hotels that were closed. Uh, the Halikolani, I think, right? Yeah, In exactly. Turtle Bay, they were doing renovations. Yeah, so uh, also the pandemic, Mufi Hanneman uh, alluded that there were some properties that were closed uh, during the pandemic, and uh, some of those properties definitely took advantage of it. They had planned renovations in the works, and uh, he had this to say about uh, hotels that were being renovated in Waikiki. Those that were in a position to do so certainly fast-tracked many of the planned renovations, so they took advantage of the fact that because the hotels wouldn't be either operating or nowhere near full capacity, renovations took place. Halikolani, the prime example, where they were able to accelerate the renovations that were going to take place uh, during a normal year. Well, they did a lot of that in 2020. Turtle Bay Resort, Waikiki Beach Marriott. And on the other hand, the Outrigger Reef was also under an $80 million uh, renovation as well, and they helped uh, retain their workers to help out with that renovation as yeah. well. Yeah, so lo- lots of uh, activity going on uh, as we move uh, into this next phase. And, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how the uh, callback on those housekeepers <laughs> plays out. But yeah. thanks so much, Casey. Thank you so much. We have been talking with HPR reporter Casey Harlow. Look for his stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Listeners who have something to share with us after hearing an interview on our show, share it via talkback line. A listener sent in this email, though, after our live interview with outgoing Hawaii Department of Education Superintendent Christina Kishimoto. Uh, he, he writes, overall, uh, a great interview, but why the question about test scores? I saw how hard my colleagues worked during 
uh, including going on several weekends on their own time to conduct mandatory testing, scheduling with parents, sanitizing with personally purchased supplies between students. The school-wide push to get testing done was unrelenting, more stress in what was already a very stressful year. I personally felt that testing, especially for elementary and intermediate school kids, should have been called off given the circumstances due to a global pandemic and the inequities of technology and home support, despite students being lent laptops. Testing is big business, and I wondered if contracts and commitments won out over reason when it came to the decision to conduct the testing this past school year. Maybe that's worth an investigation. And here is a voicemail a listener left in response to our call-in show about the state of live events in Hawaii that aired on June 29th. Hi, this is June. I'm calling from Kailua. I'm listening to the show this morning about people in the um, concert and entertainment um, community finally being able to get back to doing their work and having open venues. And my comment was just that I wonder if it's a little too soon for this still. I understand that these many businesses were devastated by um, the economy shutting down last year. Um, But I did hear that there were groups that, you know, banded together and helped each other out. And so, you know, I'm glad to hear that. And I agree that the economy does need to get back you know, restarted. But I'm wondering if it's just too soon right now. And, you know, for big venues, concerts, big people, big numbers of people getting together because they keep saying that there's um, these variants out there and there's a Delta variant that is actually more um, you know, it's if you catch it, it's actually worse than the current variant. And then we're still trying to get our numbers up in terms of getting people vaccinated. And so I'm wondering if, you know, we shouldn't be fully opening um, entertainment venues again at this time. Um, thank you. Bye. If you have thoughts to share about something you've heard on our show, leave it on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send us an email uh, at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're asking for the Japanese name of the popular savory snack cracker, commonly known in Hawaii as kakimochi or mochi crunch. In Japan, it's typically consumed in celebration of the doll festival on Girls' Day in March. Some are sweet, others are savory, and they come in many different shapes and flavors. The nori maki version is wrapped in seaweed, and the kakinotane variety is often sold with peanuts and beer. It was brought to Hawaii by Japanese immigrants who came to work on sugar plantations in the early 1900s. Since then, it's become a staple of our island snack scene, with locals being known to mix it into popcorn at the movies or stir it into cookie batter. If you bought a package of it, you probably bought it from the Hawaii-based snack company, Enjoy. It offers several varieties, including a garlic mix and a coffee-flavored version. But whether you call it kakimochi or mochi crunch, the brown cracker made from rice and flavored with soy sauce arrived on our shores with the Japanese name Arare. And congratulations to Mark from Kailua Kona. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. back with the conversation. This is Catherine Cruz. Fans of our locally produced music show Latin Beat hosted by HPR's own Ray Cruz spans both the state and the globe. We had a set alarm every Friday for 7.55 so we wouldn't miss the beginning and I'd make food, usually Mexican food with guacamole. I'd have my beer and my two shots of tequila and that was our that was our Friday night. That's what we did. We danced around the living room. We listened to the music, and and he's 
had a big impact on my love of salsa music for decades. So I just want to say thanks for putting it out there and bringing that music to us. And that was Maui resident Paige Volti, one of m- many Latin Beat fans who recently found out that Ray Cruz's show will be coming to an end this month after three decades on the air. Over its run, the Brooklyn-born Cruz shared his love of salsa and Latin jazz, or as he says, music to make your ears smile. He's been doing that with audiences for two hours every week for decades. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Ray Cruz to reflect on the last 30 years. Why is Latin Beat coming to an end? Well, Russell, to be honest with you, you know, 30 years is a long time, you know, yeah. and that's a great run for being on the radio. 30 years doing anything is a pretty good run. And, you know, I just wanted to make sure that the quality and creativity of the show was intact, and I wanted to leave on a high note. And Latin Beat enjoys a good following here in the 808, also on the continent, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And now that we have gone global where we make our show available online and I also did stuff with Mixcloud. You know, when you're successful globally and people are tuning in from all parts of the globe to see what you're playing. And I mean, you know, quite frankly, people forget what you say on the radio. But the one thing that's always a constant, they never forget how you make them feel. And so for two hours now with Latin Beat, before it used to be three hours, You know, I take people, just let them listen to some music and go in a place they want to be and forget about their daily, you know, their commute to work or their problems, especially during COVID. And that was uh, something that I I decided I had to stick around during COVID and keep people company on Friday night. Well, thanks for that. 30 years, man. 30 years. How did you guys start in radio? And then how did Latin Beat come to you? The radio thing, you just kind of sometimes you stumble into things and you happen to be at the right place at the right time. I was living in New Mexico at the time, and there was an opening at the KUNM at the university station, and I had a lot of vinyl th- around. And in New Mexico, there weren't that many people that knew their salsa music. It wasn't a big thing. That's a major- majority of people are Tejanos, Mexican, that kind of thing. And so somebody said, hey, you know, your voice sounds pretty good you got a voice and you have a little bit of knowledge about the genre. Why don't you, you know, come on the air and do it? And so I did, ran for a little bit. I also worked at KDEF, the University of Albuquerque, both stations, but two different things. One station was salsa, the other one was disco. So I had the best of both worlds. And here in Hawaii, another by chance, how I, how I got started uh, at KTUH, there was a man called Frank Amarino who's since passed, really nice guy, and he called one day and he asked me, hey, Ray, do you know about this particular artist? And I told him X, Y, Z, and he said, hey, why don't you come by the radio station and you could just say it on the air? And I said, okay, so I went and we talked story and we continued to talk more story. He says, you know, you wanna do a radio show here. So I tried and I got a really nice shift But the university, basically, when you're at KTUH, it's set up for students who want to get a degree in communications, and that's one of the lab classes that they take. So they said, hey, Ray, we're going to have to let you go, because I wasn't taking a class. I was flying for a major airline at the time. And uh, so I said, that's okay, not a problem. But there was a lady who had a show here at Hawaii Public Radio, Nancy Ortiz. She used to host a show called Arma Latina. And she knew that I was at KTUH and that I was available. So the, the then general manager, Al Holson, said, why don't you make a cassette? Now, I thought it was really kind of funny. So I, I made this cassette for him, and he listened to it, and he called me back like in an hour. And he said, yeah, talk to her, and we'll get it all worked out. So I started working with her. And then eventually that morphed into Sabo Tropical, and we had a long run with that. Then my son was getting ready to go off to college. He was at high school here on Oahu. And I said, you know what? I better spend time with him. And I did. And it was fun. We had a lot of fun before we went off to college. And then in his sophomore year, he came home and we were talking. And he said, Dad, you know, you ought to go back on the air. You miss it. A lot of people miss the show. And at that time, I, I thought about it. But 
bridging the gap had already taken the slot that I taken the slot that I had, mm-hmm. and I thought it was a good thing. And so the general manager at the time, Michael Chitterton, said, "You know, Ray, we'll try and figure something out." And I said, "Okay, great. You know, not a problem." So I, I stumbled into Wednesday nights, mm-hmm. and then our current general manager, Jose Fajardo, he said. Friday nights, that's the night you need to be in and kick off the weekend right with some hot Latin music, and here I am. And for somebody to do something like this for 30 years, you have to be passionate about it. Oh, absolutely. Where where does the passion come from? Did you grow up listening to Latin music? What Where does your love for Latin music come from? You know, since people always say that's not a cliche, but I grew up with it since I was a little kid, and I've always been around music even my sister sends me pictures every now and then, you know, me playing instruments and I'm like knee high to a grasshopper. You know, I'm just small and I was involved in music all during school and played instruments and the whole nine yards. So I always had a love for music, but I don't know, with Latin music in particular, salsa in particular, it's a genre that hasn't been around that long. Mm-hmm. It maybe started in the mid 40s started in Cuba and then made its way to New York. So I'm knocking on 70 years old. I actually lived all of that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I saw the changes, how, how it morphed into just being in certain Latin countries and now it's a global thing. One thing that I've always been curious about, where do you find your music and how do you put your show together? From an outsider, it seems like it's such a small market, but but the more I think about it, the more I realize that it's it's a global market. Oh, oh, absolutely. It's a global market. So where do you get your music from, and how do you put your show together? Well, that all started basically with, with my own personal collection and the years that I, you know, had those still, some of those vinyls, I just, I still had them. I gave them to a friend of mine uh, because, you know, I started to collect so much music that my wife told me, one of these days, it's either you or this music. And I was like, oh, well. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what I answered her, though. But, uh, you know, you start to collect the music, and then what happens is you start to connect with the major record labels. Mm-hmm. And because of Hawaii Public Radio, I went to cover a lot of concerts, El Dia Nacional de la Salsa, which is, like, big, big. It's, like, all day, 12 hours of nothing but the best performers in salsa music playing at a concert in Puerto Rico. And I represented Hawaii Public Radio, so you honey honey, you talk to people, you drop business cards, and they go, man, you're in Hawaii? Wow, before you know it, they're calling you 5-0, they're calling, <laughs> right. I don't care what you give me, but if you're gonna right. send me good music, I'm all for it. Yeah. And people say, well, how do you put your show together? Every week it's different. I say, you know what, today I'll start, like, I'll use a painter's analogy. Today I'll start with yellow and then I'll add a little green, and all of a sudden it becomes blue, and then I'll add another color, and I make up the show as I go along. And that comes from working in nightclubs. Every night it's a different crowd. Mm -hmm. So you have to approach it completely different. You have to know when you put your foot on the gas, you have to know when to take your foot off of the gas, slow it down so the lovers get a chance, (laughs) the bar makes money, that kind of thing. So, you know, and good DJs play the music that people want to hear. Great DJs play music that people weren't sure or never knew they wanted to hear it. And that's like, wow, where do you get that? And when a DJ comes up to you and says, who is that? Man, that's it. Yeah, That's payday right there. What kind of audience feedback have you gotten over the years? As you've gone out into public areas or meet someone for the first time and they realize that you're the host of Latin Beat, what kind of stories do you get from the people who listen to your show? I have one that will I'll always remember, always. I retired from United, and I started to work at a big box store. And I was working membership, and this girl comes up, and I go, Hi, how you doing? What can I do to help you? And she starts to tell me, and she says, You know, your voice sounds familiar. And I said, Oh, really? And then she saw my name tag, and she said, Are you the guy that does the salsa show on, on I, it was Saturdays. I used to be on five to eight. I said, yeah. I smiled and I said, yeah, that's me. And she goes, I grew up with you. And then it, it just hit me. I looked at this young girl. She was maybe like 20 some odd years old. She said, my dad used to play 
your music on the lanai on Saturday, and there'd be lickings if anybody interrupted him. And she just went on and on and on. And I started thinking, you know, she's right. She's probably been listening for the last 10 years Mm -hmm. as she grew up. And so, you know, that in particular always makes you think, you know, there's people out there enjoying them. We don't see them because we just talk into this contraption here. But like I said, you know, people forget what you're saying, what I've said, but they'll never forget how you make them feel. And, and that, to me, is always the joy. And, you know, you're only as good as your last gig. You know, me, I'm looking forward. And now I just said to myself, with all the things that are going on in Hawaii Public Radio, all the advances that we're trying to make to make Hawaii Public Radio a better public radio station, not only for the 808, but everybody who listens outside of the 808. There's a lot of progressive things going on. I want to concentrate on that. I think Latin Beat and Sabotro Vigal went as far as they were going to go, and I'll leave it on a high note, and I'll leave it to people to judge whether they liked it or not or they miss it. That's up to them. To me, I left all the cards on the table, and I feel good about the run. And that was Ray Cruz, host of HPR's Latin Beat, talking with our Russell Subiono. The final Latin Beat show airs this Friday evening from 8 to 10 p.m. here on HPR. Mahalo for all you do, Ray Cruz. Even the best radio shows come to an end. After 30 years, host Ray Cruz has decided to step away from the mic, and his show Latin Beat will conclude on July 30th. Starting August 6th, we're bringing you World Cafe with an eclectic blend of blues, rock, world, folk, and alternative country. Catch it Fridays from 8 to 10 p.m. here on HPR One. Learn more about the changes on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash new. And that winds it up for this Monday. Tomorrow, we take the time to talk oral history. Our focus is Kauai's Kaloa Plantation. Do you have a plantation memory to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.